0: Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. It is the middle of June, and this is our last episode before we take a little bit of a summer break, but it's going to be a good episode. I can already feel it because I know that things are afoot in at least the Condon world. Sarah, what's going on?
1: Well, after 15 years of marriage, we have bought a house, which is very exciting. We have a little vacation getaway house in Oxford, Mississippi, so um, we are here now, Thanks to um, a small army of family, all led victoriously by my aunt Becky, mm-hmm. um, we're like moved in. She basically just like got everybody here, and you know, oh my I had, gosh, my cousin David was putting bed sheets on my children's beds.
2: You had an Amish barn raising.
1: <laughs> so sweet. What people would say
2: is that they actually built the house for
0: you <laughs> yesterday. <Exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> this is Mississippi. <laughs> Do you feel uh, re tethered to the, the place? I know we oh, talked about that before. Yeah, I do.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, it immediately, like, we went out. Well, we closed, and um, gosh, that was day before yesterday. And we went out to the square here mm-hmm. to celebrate with a friend. And I, the first, one of the first people I saw was um, a professor I'd had in college who recognized me. And we just had the sweetest conversation and she knows what's happened with my parents and it was so tender and her grandchildren were there and we talked about getting the kids together and, you know, it just an an immediate sense of being known and loved. And Josh, we were walking away and Josh was like, this was the right thing. So, yeah, that's so good. It's really good. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah.
0: Rutger, what what do you, what do you have to say for yourself?
1: Not
2: much. Uh, you know, we're back in church, which is lovely, you know, after being a few months in the tent. And uh, my new associate priest, the Reverend. Who
1: also has initial names. The Reverend okay.
2: DJ Griffin, yes, will be RJ and DJ. And there's actually a retired <laughs> priest who comes to church named PJ. No! So they, yeah, shut yeah. up. Yeah. Really? Totally, totally, we're serious. done. I know. But he gets here. It's like uh, the, the world's little...
1: widest band. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Pretty, R- RJ, pretty DJ, much and PJ. RJ, DJ, PJ. So he'll be here next week, which I'm really excited about, and we'll have about uh, four days together in the office and one Sunday, and then I go on vacation. So I'm throwing oh, him God. to the I'm throwing him to the the wolves a little bit, but he'll do just an amazing job. He'll so be he great. And his, he and mm-hmm. his wife Sam are awesome. Um, they're coming uh, from Dallas, and that's just an exciting thing. That's great. You know? so that's great.
0: I mean, we, we've talked about how. Much you need this. Yeah. I I can't stop thinking about Huey Dewey and Louie from uh, you know, <laughs> yes.
2: Donald yes. Duck's little nephews. Yes.
1: It would be good PJ, to have some
2: help. I, DJ. Like I don't. I don't even quite know what I'm going to do with myself when I'm not without without my hair on fire all the time. You'll of figure course, it out. Uh, of course I will. Of course. Yeah. I will. Yes. <laughs> But uh, that's how. That's a, And actually, right. It's funny. Right now, my wife and I are home alone because one of our sons is in Iowa, one's in Texas, and one is in Connecticut. Which means that Jamie is constantly hyperventilating. Uh, but it also means that we have like five days home alone, which we have not that's had. So nice. When's the last time we had five days? It's been. It's been a long time. So. Yeah. It's you nice. know what?
1: She'll chill out just long enough to really enjoy it for about twenty minutes before they come back. <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs>
2: she was really worried about our four year old who's gone for a while, but he seems to be doing fantastically. I, you oh, yeah, know, sure. Grandmother of the century, Hillary Heyman, has him up in New Canaan sending him to camps and doing all sorts of stuff. Ooh, so that's awesome. That's yeah, pretty amazing. Shout
0: out to uh Hillary.
2: Shout out you to grandmas. In, Absolutely.
0: Thanks Shout for uh, out. Yes. You know, helping yeah. make this possible. Well, you know, it's uh here in Charlottesville it has just gotten warm and kids are out of school and pools are open and it just it's hard not to it feels like the last year was sort of um, erased you know we're back A to doing state. what we did we did two years ago and I keep thinking oh last summer we did this and last, wait, no we didn't Mm-mm. nothing was we open. didn't do anything like we were doing zilch we looked out so. our
1: windows for zombies <laughs>
0: But it's really, it's, it's nice to see the kids thriving and being able to do activities and all that stuff. I, I don't think, I'm sure I'll take it for granted again soon, but I'm not taking it for granted right this second. And that's yes. probably, I just want to report that to you before, before it, Duly it noted. vaporizes into the ether. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's, it is it is June, it's our last episode for a little while, and so every, you know, twice a year, it is time to sort of check in with folks and um, give you the opportunity to support Mockingbird. This has been, um, you know, it's been a, a really sort of a, almost a guilty, I almost feel guilty saying and it's been a great year for what our work, especially this podcast. Mm. And we hear from so many people about what it's meant and, you know, just keeping people sort of engaged and really meeting them where they are. Um, but yeah, we need your help. We have a lot more to raise for our budget for this year and uh, a lot going on. But any, any, any ways you would pitch the
2: ministry, you two? I would just say I've heard from multiple people that in the midst of a really intense year when going to church like wasn't necessarily a possibility, that Mockingbird has kept them uh, kind of tethered to their faith, tethered to Jesus, and uh, tethered to what's true right, what's real, what's hopeful in the midst of what's been a very difficult uh, time. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners can relate to that, to just a, a sense of being able to tell the truth, to talk about the truth, um, but also to be reminded that we're not, we're not in this alone, right, mm-hmm. that, that God actually is with us and present even in the midst of very difficult and trying circumstances. So um, yeah, send some of that sweet government money our way, do it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I love it. Um, I think for me, it's a real personal thing of if there have been moments that you have listened to this podcast or read something on the website. I mean, that's certainly how I first discovered Mockingbird in a powerful way that have made you forgive people in your life Mm. that you thought were unforgivable Mm. or have even just like softened your heart towards people that maybe you feel like you can't reconcile with this side of heaven, but you know that the Lord loves them and and you do too. Um, I would say to give generously, um, because you know, I think so much about how mockingbird really impacted my relationship with my parents in so many ways. And, um, and gave us so much grace and mercy for one another, and how priceless that is to me. So if you know if you have that kind of stuff in your life, and anything that the, the Holy Ghost has used us because it's certainly not us saying it um, to to make you feel softer or more tender or more forgiveness, then I would say you know give generously because um, we would love to be able to do that for more people in the world. And we know certainly that that is the goal of, of Jesus Christ. So Mm. yeah.
0: Kind of want to stop the episode there. Um, I'll I'll put it. Don't, I
1: got things to say that are a lot funnier than (laughs) that, but
0: thank you, Sarah. We've got, she's
2: got profanity to drop. Okay.
1: Yeah. I mean,
2: yeah.
0: The link to where you can give and how you can give online or you can send it in a donation, but the, all the instructions, that'll be in the show notes. Uh, people who sign up for monthly giving, which is a lot of people, um, I find it that an easy way to give. You get a, a subscription to the magazine. But, I love um,
1: that. I mean, that, yeah, highly recommend. Set it
0: and forget it. We're yeah. working hard on the, the money issue. So that's maybe, the, <laughs> maybe that's what, uh, uh, maybe that's the, the right issue also, for Also, I
1: have a new advice column in yes. the, yes. <laughs> Which Uh-oh. is, I'm not qualified Uh-oh. to do, but somebody thought it was a good idea. Yeah, so, that's... anyway, become a monthly subscriber. Josh? Get some bad Did Josh say it was a good idea? Josh was <laughs> like, Sarah, definitely you didn't think it was a good idea. Ama- you
2: give such amazing advice, Sarah.
1: <laughs> everyone should benefit
2: from your wisdom.
0: <laughs> anyway, everyone, thank you for listening and yes. do give generously. Please. We really could yes. use it. Yes. Um, so, on that note, we're going to talk about first up, talk about cults. Talk about some cults. This is Sophie Gilbert writing in The Atlantic. I uh, was reviewing a new book by Amanda Montell called Cultish. There's a lot of sort of seculosity uh, overtones and undertones here. But the title of the article is We Choose Our Cults Every Day. Ooh. And, and this is what she said because it's just a slightly fresh take. She says, uh, Sophie Gilbert writes, I read Cultish, Amanda Montell's savvy and enlightening new book about the sort of cults people join every day and the linguistic patterns those cults and cult-like brands use to reel us in. The demands of modern living, Montel argues, has left many people looking to brands and gurus for the kind of guidance and meaning they used to find in religion. I know more people who worship at the altar of Peloton than I do who go to church And as with anything that engenders devotion and financial commitment alike, there's space for exploitation to occur. Now, Montel, by the way, who wrote this book, is a linguist, so she's interested in the linguistic uh, uh, and sociolinguistic aspects of cult uh, rhetoric. Cultish language uh, does three things. One, it makes people feel unique, but also connected to others. Two, it encourages people to feel dependent on a particular leader, group, or product to the extent that life without them feels impossible. And three, it, quote, convinces people to act in ways that are completely in conflict with their former reality, ethics, and sense of self. The last two effects are what tend to separate brands or people who inspire cult followings from malign groups and leaders. You know, if anyone who's watched those Nixium documentaries that came out during the pandemic knows what we're talking about. Uh, she goes on, occultish brands without coercing people or enabling abuse rely on the same linguistic coding to hook customers and engender a sense of belonging. The quote words and intonation of a cult fitness class such as Peloton or SoulCycle can put exercise in a transcendent headspace. Montel writes, while the multi-level marketing company Amway characterizes any kind of negativity as stinking thinking. Consumerist influencers what? have... T-
1: <laughs> It's like a Southern mother (laughs) phrase. Okay, keep going. Sorry. Uh,
0: Consumerist influencers have tapped into the holes in American health care system, mixing medical terms and psychobabble into an enticingly frothy wellness cocktail. Many cults and cultish communities also rely on expressions called thought-terminating cliches, which affirm positivity while shutting down debate. Cultish cites some of the catchphrases used by conspiracy theorists of QAnon as examples. Trust the plan. The awakening is bigger than all of this. And do your research. Thought-terminating cliches, Montel writes, are semantic stop signs in a cue that everyone present should halt independent inquiry and accept the party line. She's really more interested here in brands as Mm -hmm. cults. uh, And... uh, Brands as religions almost rather than the sort of wider swath of seculosity that you see in politics and in parenting and stuff. But brands, are you guys, um,
2: can you relate to this sort of? B- Bo Burnham has a thing or two to say about brands. I was going to say, and what is, oh tell gosh. us a little bit about that. I mean, you guys were onto that before I was. I, I finally, you know, once all my children left, I've had more time for media consumption. Yeah. And so I watched it, and I said by myself, and I, I said to my wife, I said, you you need to watch this. Either, it's either going to be your most favorite thing or your least favorite thing, and she just was totally obsessed with it. So if you haven't seen Bo Burnham Inside, uh, can we? Rec- I think we can recommend it, right? There's some profanity. There's some, sure. there's some stuff, but it's... Uh,
1: we can it, recommend it. It may end up
2: being, I think there's a good chance it could become like... I don't want to say the cultural artifact that mm. kind of rep- best represents pandemic. Well, that's you know, the Tiger pa- King. pandemic yep. experience. It's it's but it's going to be up there. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. And yeah. Anyway, he talks about the cult of brands and. And the, uh, the 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 needs for brands to take an important social stance for the purpose of selling more stuff, <laughs> you know, in a very in a very funny way. It's it's not enough to
0: you know sell crackers to people. What you have to ask yourself is, will you join wheat <laughs> wheat thins in the uh, in their battle against Lyme disease? That's
2: right. That's yes. <laughs> yes. He's so he's kind of. I was thinking he the two people who seem to have really have. Uh, Understood and done well during the pandemic are him and Dave Chappelle, right? The two geniuses, and in totally different ways. Bo Burnham was in is in a room for by himself for a year and made an amazing movie, and Dave Chappelle has been hosting outdoor comedy events in a small town in Ohio, you know. But they, in their own way, they've sort of. Uh, you know, what did that tweet say, Dave? Um, someone was in an interview and someone asked him, uh, what passion projects have you had the chance to pursue during the pandemic? And it's like, that's the most awful question ever. And yet Bo Burnham and uh, Dave Chappelle seem to have actually accomplished it. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, yeah.
0: how, how depressed could he actually be given what he was able to make? Now, but I don't want to d- detract from the incredible yeah. special. Anyway, but, but, that,
2: but that's another here nor there. Let's talk about the article.
0: <laughs> no, no. Sarah, what do you think about brands as religions?
1: Whoo. Um, yeah, it's well, it's fascinating. Um, Oh, I have to be so it's just, you know, I tread lightly here. It is fascinating to think for me, because like, right, the brand I work for is, um, the cross, just kidding. <laughs> um, it's, a
0: Jewish cross, right? <laughs>
1: right. I mean, like we wish that it was that earnest, but is the Episcopal church. And I think about like the kind of branding that we do, um, that can be really polarizing and, um, sometimes not super biblical and sometimes doesn't make a lot of sense. And, you know, it, and, and, and maybe in a lot of ways, doesn't actually listen to the hearts of people and their suffering and their brokenness. Um, mm. Cause it's easier. And this is true of all brands. It's easier to kind of address some sort of like larger thing um, to fix uh, that we can all be on board with and not really understand maybe why um, mm. or how that affects our hearts. Uh, there's this, fascinating woman uh i will I, we should link it in the show notes um i can't remember her name uh she's a young black woman and she does this every friday she does these parking lot talks and they're great they're like <laughs> four or five minute before. history yeah. things and she talks about like you know and her like she like comes on and she's like still here still black or something When like she starts it she's very funny and incredibly educated in in sort of all of these lines. But she, you know, she talks about sort of Black History Month and Pride Month and kind of like, you know, all these brands are, are ab- sort of absorbing this identity, right? Mm-hmm. So we all feel like, oh, we should buy from this. We should consume this. But, like, we haven't – we don't know why, right, really. We don't know the history, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but it makes us feel good, and it gives them money. And it's like, you know, having her kind of pull some of that apart was so, like, eye-opening. Um, yeah. So, anyway, yeah. I mean, I think there's a whole thing with branding. And, and it does make me wonder, like, what – I don't know, Is this has this always been a thing? Is this a modern construct? I mean, I think it's more of a modern construct than not where we would prefer to deal with an overarching narrative than to deal with the sadness in our hearts. I don't know. I mean, I hate to be so bleak about it, but I think that's like kind of what branding does. I mean, even when I buy things and I'm totally like, give me some pale pink packaging with black lettering please Instagram on a beauty product and I will purchase it from you. You know, um, there's something about that. That's intrinsic. Like, I think it's going to make me feel better.
0: Right. Well, there's a a huge identity piece to this and like you kind of are the brands that you consume and, and you're that, um, and that's why when 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 companies' political stances, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of like what happened with Chick-fil-A and people getting really excited to eat at Chick-fil-A and really mad if other people eat at Chick-fil-A, it, it's this thing that would be sort of incomprehensible 15 years ago to, to expect, to look to a brand to have a political endorsement. And then, you know, this past month, you know, uh, being, I've been wished a happy Pride month by by bonobos uber you know yes. the the economist it's sort of like guys it, this is it's it's so cheapens i mean it's very easy to get really cynical about it because it, it, someone is feels like they they're checking a box somewhere um but i i mean i can't help but think about it in terms of mockingbird i've always resisted us doing too much branded stuff like i you know there's been requests for swag and you know i've given in over the years um because I just never wanted it to, to be another thing like that, another signifier or, a, uh, you know, or do you have the shirt? Do you have the mug? All that stuff. But we we did a conference, you know, we did this conference in May in Tyler. And one of the things people love about it is that it's just branded to an inch of its life. And it's, that's just what we've come to expect. And yeah. Matt does a great job and it's beautiful. Yeah, it's and beautiful. It's, it's, it's not sort of yeah. overwhelming. But I yeah. I think to myself, have I lost out by by not uh, or have we, have we sort of missed something by not um, speaking the language of how people live, which is according to brands. I mean, I, I it's just a yeah. Thing.
1: I mean, I think it's. I, I so I do think there's always people on the outside looking in when you're branding, and so I think that's. I do actually think that's a really. It used to drive me crazy, Dave's all that you would not brand as much as this enneagram three desired you to, <laughs> but but I do think that there's something about like people are all. That is always going to leave someone out in a, in a way. I think.
0: I I drive a Subaru Outback, and there's a lot of jokes about Subarus. And someone just wrote to me and said, "I've been driving a Subaru for almost a month now. Is someone supposed to send me my coexist bumper sticker, or does it just grow on there?" <laughs> yeah.
1: You won't see
2: any bumper stickers on my car. So RJ, what else are you thinking? I didn't think about the brand aspect so much. I I was thinking about that word cult, and and it it made me think a couple mm-hmm. things. One was. Um, a youth minister that Dave and I used to work with, kind of legendary, Richard Gwathme, uh, who I know will hear about this. Uh, I think, love you, I Richard. think he's the one who once said to me, RJ, you know, for better or worse, the reality is uh, ministry is a cult of personality, mm. right? That if you're going to participate in a ministry, a youth ministry, a church or whatever, it's usually going to be because you like or have some affinity for the person in charge, right? Now, you we all wish it wasn't that way. Yeah. But it is that way. Yeah, Um, And sort of a related thought was that um, we all have an attraction to cultishness, right? We all have an attraction to being part of a club that makes us feel special with special language and hand signals and, you know, secret knowledge and all sorts of stuff. Um, and it can be—the that the, the cult of personality combined with our innate desire because of our need to feel special and self-justified of being part of something like a cult means that you can easily—church can become cultish, right? Or your version of church or Christianity can become a little cultish. And I think just for myself as a Christian leader, it's, I sort of feel like it's my responsibility to deconstruct both of those things. Right mm-hmm. to make sure that it doesn't become either just about me or what I bring to the table, or about the special language that we use. And and uh, Sarah, as you said, you know, there's there's plenty of room for that in the Episcopal Church, right? We have a special w- we have a special word for everything, right? It's not a napkin, it's a purificator. Wait, it's yes. not a it's not a, yes. it's not a rope, it's a cincture. Yeah. It's not a yes. it's not yes. a it's not Jesus a isn't room,
1: bringing the kingdom, we're building it. Okay. I mean, whatever it might okay, be. Okay, thanks, Jesus. We're good. You mean good. The, the kingdom. Yeah, yes.
2: and there's all yes. sorts of special ways that you can hold your hands or vestment, yes. and some of those are beautiful and historic and whatever. Sure, yeah. But if you're if you're using that to point to Jesus in a way that is um, open and welcoming and sort of inclusive that invites people in to be part of something, yeah. that's great. If you're using it as a way to make yourself feel more special or to exclude certain types of people, yeah. uh, whether they're different from you politically or whatever it might be, it's not good you know yeah. and, and so to to resist that urge that um, people might place on you or want to you know christianese you know there's christianese there's episcopalese mm-hmm. there's there's um all these things have their own language and so mm. i think that's uh, that's helpful whenever i feel that in welling up in myself or i see the demand of being placed on me by other people to become more cultish just to resist that because it seems that has nothing to do with jesus and
1: to know
0: that right. it's linguistic, often in its, yes. thr- in its initial thrust, you yes. know that you're—that's the danger you're running when you you have a, a sexton instead of a janitor. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. That's right. That's it's true. Right. I mean, I always appreciate the acknowledgement that, uh, it, first of all, that that just because you're not at church doesn't mean you're not a part of some cult. I mean, I think that just basically speaking, that is something that is important to acknowledge. You're
1: definitely in a cult if you're not a part of a church. Yeah, just how many? I mean, I'm sorry. Like, you found something, okay? (laughs) But I also would
0: say that it's easy to to use cult as just a word to dismiss anything you kind of don't think is you, you yeah. don't like that you're not a yeah. part of you yeah, know, yeah, the yeah. cults that you're not a part of. You just call them cults and that's a way to yeah. not deal with them. But I also th- would say that one thing that um, she's alludes to in this article, and maybe the book gets that deeper. And the reason why brands have been so successful who are doing this is because people are lonely. Yes. They're yeah. so lonely. There's yes. people who are in so much uh, yes. pain. I mean, and they I don't mean to be so
1: callous to say Pete, you're definitely in a cult if you're not at church, but like you, you, we are, we all crave belonging, right? And so you're going to find it. I mean, I just, the, the thing I would say about like any kind of branding, and I do think it's a lot of like what we see on Instagram, but I do see this in churches sometimes and it makes me very like, and I understand the temptation. But when people say like, well, all those other places are doing this. But we're doing this and here's why it's better. It just, I mean, I remember saying to Josh at some point at Holy Spirit, and I don't even remember what it was. It was, you know, I don't, I'm not even going to sit here and brag. It was some number that was really good that maybe wouldn't be typical in a mainline Protestant church. And I said, well, you need to get up there.
2: A.K.A. any good number, but continue. Yeah,
1: well, that's right. Yeah, we had a lot of coffee. We had gallons of coffee. No, I don't know what it was. But he, I said, you need to get up there and because, you know, I give too much advice. And thankfully, he does not always listen. And you need to tell them that this is different and we're doing something better. And he goes, I'm not getting up there and shitting on other churches. <laughs> and I mean, I think I was like, oh, my God, that's exactly what I'm telling him to do. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I think and that's when you scroll through Instagram that's essentially what like well you've tried all the other these but here's this you know kind of thing
2: you've tried yeah. the rest now try
0: the best
1: now try the best yeah, no, it's, and it's it's hard Pizza especially box. when
0: you feel like you've, you've you've landed on something that's really gracious and good news and you want to yes. say well, you know the legalistic Christianity in its, in its both liberal and conservative forms is killing the church and yes. Mockingbird is here and to Mocking save Bird's
1: it and Mockingbird's amazing so watch yeah.
0: out you know all right. of a sudden it's like it negates itself and it's uh, yes
1: it's but then it can become too
0: self-conscious yes. and and you can be like well you know we do think we're doing something you,
1: right you know, absolutely um, but as soon as you you tiptoe into that territory of like we're doing it better than anyone and i you know and i will say like when i first became a part of mockingbird that was like i talked to like that all the time mm-hmm. and then you realize that like that in and of itself excludes people yeah. you know well, and, and also- there's no humility or grace in that and mm-hmm.
2: not, and and when you start to get into that type of mindset, you're basically making you're making obviously making it about yourself, right? You're making yeah. it about what you bring yeah. to the table. Yes. You're setting yourself up for like massive humiliation. Yes. and you're not and you're not leaving any room for God. You're not leaving no. any room for God to no. actually do something. You've got to you're hold it. just.
1: Yeah, you're setting we, yourself up for an affair. Yes, I mean that's we're what's we're,
2: we're called yeah. to hold everything, especially most especially any success that we've experienced with as loose a hand as possible. Oh, RJ, right, because yes. you're just setting yourself up for massive, yeah. massive failure. And I was just, yeah. you know, I was just listening
0: to Sinead O'Connor's song uh, "Success Has Made a Failure of Our Home." <laughs> yeah, It's a great, incredible moly. song if you want to listen oh. to it. It's, it's got some real zingers in there. Well, let's move on uh, from this, actually, into something that is, has to do with the brand and uh, someone we've talked about before. We're going to talk about Nike and Michael Jordan. Now, this was in the Paris Review. Hanif Abdurraqib. I think I'm saying that wrong. Hanif uh, Abdurraqib. Uh, he wrote, he's a really fantastic writer, and he writes usually about sports for the Paris Review. And he wrote something called On Sneakers, which is really about the, um, the movie Like Mike, which starred Lil Bow Wow back in the 90s. <laughs> and it was oh about a magical gosh, pair yes. of sneakers. And it was a big, big deal. It was a very formative for you know, kids at that time. But he talks about his own relationship with Michael Jordan in a way that I think as we approach Father's Day, because Father's Day is this weekend, and we will have passed by the time people hear this. But it, it, I was not expecting this. So this is what Hanif wrote. He says, June 16th, 1996 was Father's Day. It was also game six of the NBA finals. The Bulls had a chance to close out the Seattle Supersonics and win another title. I loved Gary Payton, and I loved Sean Kemp, and so I went to the finals rooting for Seattle, even though I knew my rooting was a futile effort. They played hard, but it soon became evident that, like most teams matched up with the Bulls, they just weren't good enough. The Bulls won that game, and I don't remember much of it. I don't remember how anyone played, and without looking it up, I couldn't even tell you who the home team was. It was Michael Jordan's fourth title, his fourth NBA championship, his first since the 1993 championship, which had taken place about a month before his father, James, was murdered. Mm. For all of the visual and aesthetic iconography around Jordan, so much of it, looking back, feels forced and sometimes overly dramatic. The flu game, when he collapsed into Scottie Pippen's arms, for example. I have no qualms about theatrics, to be clear, especially sports theatrics, so I love every moment of it. But there is a difference between typical sports theatrics and real expressions of emotion. On Father's Day, in the locker room after winning his fourth title, Michael Jordan clutched a basketball on the floor and sobbed. Loud, heaving sobs. He looked spent, not physically, but emotionally running fully publicly into the arms of his grief, a grief that had lingered, a grief that endured as so many different modes of grief do. I've heard, I'd heard stories of people crying like this loud and seemingly without control, but this was the first time I'd seen it up close. The first time I'd seen it on someone who until that point had been an immortal. The Michael Jordan crying moment didn't embed within me an understanding that he was human Rather, it laid a framework for me to fit my large emotional self into. I was a sensitive kid. I'd cried a lot, and I would cry a lot more, and there was a time when I was ridiculed for that outside of my home, and then there was a time when the ridicule stopped. I felt in my adolescent mind that I owed Michael Jordan, a foolish feeling, but one I adhered to for years to come. No one could tell me anything about my big, overwhelming emotional pursuits, because look at this, a man at the top of his game, his career, wept on national television, and it was loud and messy. And I am remembering now that the Chicago Bulls were the home team because when I close my eyes, I can still see the large red 23 against the white fabric, trembling on Jordan's back with every trembling cry. And that moment wasn't about basketball for me, and it certainly wasn't about shoes, though I'm sure it didn't, it didn't help sales of the latter. And to be clear, I didn't understand it at the time. I didn't understand how Michael Jordan could still be sad about something that had happened three years ago. I was not even a teenager yet. I had no idea about the immense nature of grief.
2: I mean, that's a Michael Jordan crying is like a big time meme, you know. But I, I had never connected that to the death of his father. I didn't realize that actually. So that's helpful because you, if you listen to the podcast, you know that I, uh, I don't, I, I'm not a huge fan of Michael Jordan. I kind of find him to be a difficult person. So there you go, how this podcast is helping me to be more forgiving <laughs> towards people I don't like. But um, yeah, that's well, powerful. It, it, he, it,
0: on Father's Day, I think there's there's the cultural pressure, and I don't know, it, it also, its, it's, 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 it's uh, roots are very multivalent, I think, but the idea that real men don't cry... And they don't show emotion and the lack of vulnerability and the sort of keep it together kind of, you know, Kyle uh, vibe. (laughs) And there you have, I guess, in 1996, him seeing the greatest sort of male role model of his entire time, uh, not having won, but still expressing such profound grief through tears. I I never connected those dots either. And I think it's an incredible lesson to learn about... um, masculinity and about, um, you know, the nature of grief being something that's persistent and uh, that comes upon you also in times when you least expect it. You know, it was his first real victory without his dad by his side. And that mm. is a, um, was, 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 it brought out the waterworks in a completely uncontrived moment, non-television happy, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't choreographed. Um, and that's why people love sports, I think, uh, and, and just because it's real life.
2: Sarah, what do you think? Best I mean, reality TV.
1: I mean, I keep thinking about this um, wedding. You know, we have these really adoptive grandparents who were a part of our lives before we lost mom and dad and are very much a part of our lives now. And um, their daughter got married and all four of us were in the wedding and uh, it was so beautiful. But I stood in the back of the chapel and... Um, as it was about to start and realized my parents would not be there Mm. when my kids got married. And I mean, to be clear, my mother genetically really like given the women in our family and how long we live could have lived to 95. That would not have been a huge surprise. So, um, I kind of very much expected her to at least be there. Um, and I thought, Oh my gosh. And it was that thing of like, um, you know, I'm living in a weird tension right now because, you know, we we went to this wedding and I put up some pictures and we all looked so beautiful and happy and we were. And, you know, we've bought this house in Oxford and it's wonderful. And I think it's really easy for people to kind of see those things and forget how sad we still are, you know, all the time. I mean, it's just always there. And when I stood in the back of that chapel and I, it hit me, you know, my mom won't be helping Annie get ready for, uh, or, you know, put a veil on the way my grandmothers did. Um, I just was like, oh, shit, I'm about to lose it in this wedding. And it's going to be so awkward. And Josh is at the front in a collar about to marry these people. So he definitely can't come for me. And my kid's are always embarrassed when I cry. <laughs> and thank God, this 25-year-old guy next to me had had too much to drink that day, and he passed out. So I just pivoted. I <laughs> felt like the Lord sent him in. I pivoted and, you know, helped catch him and had a bottle of water. And I, th- I really was like, oh, Jesus is just helping me to, like, find something else to focus on in this moment. Um, you know, and that doesn't mean that that's the last time I'll have that experience at a wedding. Mm. Um, I mean, my brother gets married in December. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I think about, like, when will the grief hit me? Mm. And will it hit me at a really bad, you know, quote, unquote, bad time? Um, and I think the marvelous thing about this piece of writing is, like, sometimes what seems like the worst time is actually the best time.
0: Uh, he talks about when his mother dies, he didn't cry, mm-hmm. and then like three years later, he's walking mm-hmm. home from school and he sits down on a bench and weeps uncontrollably. Yeah. And there's this great, you know, we're we're a mystery in in these in, oh. the, in these senses, and grief is overwhelming and it's vast and it's also. Um, we're going to get to a piece that you sent us, Sarah, yeah. wh- that ties this to our experience of God in a very visceral way. Um, but before we do, R.J., any any more thoughts of, that are, you know, not necessarily NBA related?
2: <laughs> um, You're excited I for the new space, say, space Jam movie? <laughs> oh my God, can't wait! Can't wait. Mm. I think what this article made me think is that grieving is grieving is scary. Grieving is actually an act of faith, right? Because when you let when you let yourself grieve. You're trusting that you'll come out the other side.
1: Oh my you know? gosh, yes, RJ. Um, yes.
2: But you don't know if you will. But you, you don't, don't know you if don't you will. You don't know if you will, right? Yeah. Part of you is like, if I let you know, if you let yourself go there, if you let yourself experience the emotions, maybe I'm not going to ever come back. Right. Right? Um, it really is an act of faith to say, I, I'll get through this, or, or God's going to bring me through this. He'll catch me. I'll, I'll experience happiness and joy and light again. Um, but grieving in that sense is, um, is incredibly hard. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, as we're coming out of the pandemic a little bit, I'm sure there are a lot of people who, there are things to grieve, things have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- do, do, w- do we have the courage and kind of the faith to allow ourselves to go there? And the reality is we don't have any choice, right? You're, you've either got to do it or it's going to come out sideways, <laughs> you know? So would you rather spend um, the time you need to do grieving try, you know, or just have it be a slow burn, mm. you know, for a long time?
0: Yeah. Well, we're not done talking about death yet. <laughs> Woo! Hey, <laughs> you know, well, summer is a time when everyone there's there is still the idea that it's lighter and happier, and you know, it's it's there's more sunlight and everything like that. And it, I remember uh, Lana Del Rey has that song like uh, "Sad Summer," and it just it's uh, yeah. it's a great song. I mean, like everything yeah. she does, it's awesome. Um, but it's people don't. There is something about melancholy and grief in the summer that feels out of place and you're, you're, yeah. not, you're not celebrating alongside. Uh, so um, to make space for that maybe is a good thing, I don't know. But this is next uh, next essay, is from Kelsey Osgood in Plough, and she's writing about Ernst Becker. Ernst Becker, who is the famous psychoanalyst who wrote The Denial of Death, and he, in his book he evaluates various systems of heroics, methods by which we try to conquer death and found two to be the most compelling. One is psychoanalysis, and the other one's religion. And uh, this is what uh, Kelsey Osgood writes. She says, By the time The Denial of Death was published in 1973, religion had been largely ousted by psychoanalysis, which sought to make uh, men knowable to themselves by means of cold clinical observation and codification, and which all but guaranteed self-mastery for those who submitted to its ethos. Becker writes, the promise of psychology, like all of modern science, was that it would usher in the era of the happiness of man by showing him how things worked, how one thing caused another. Then, when man knew the causes of things, all he had to do was take possession of the domain of nature, including his own nature, and his happiness would be assured. One glance at our world today, Osgood writes, should (laughs) should prove that this didn't exactly pan out. The problem, Becker said, was that even if man did conquer himself, it would prove a toothless victory because man's dilemma was centered around the self's inherent destructibility. And he, he clearly sort of favors religion in this discourse, uh, and he said, but he offers some caveats as well as some digs. Becker, right? In some ways, religion is much worse than psychoanalysis because it usually it reinforces the parental and social authorities and makes the bind of circumstantial guilt even stronger and more <laughs> crippling. <laughs> that is quite an d- indictment from someone who saw religion very positively. So let me shift gears. Becker's preference for religion is plastered all over the text, Osgood writes, over and over. He says that people need something beyond themselves that exists completely independently, some entity that gives credence to both the body that will decay and the spirit that will endure. Uh. There's only one thing that fits that description, and that is religion. It's fair to say that what Becker is really getting at is not that religion is best is the best system for processing our relationship to mortality, but that the divine reality religion points to is the only answer that satisfies. He wasn't wrong when he said that religion can become a calcified, self-satisfying loop just as readily as man-made ideologies, like the cults that uh, them brands that uh, we re- heard about. But a belief grounded in expansiveness, love. And reverence that fosters both humility and self respect, that yes. fixes man's mm. eyes on the stars and his heart, his poor, fragile, doomed human heart. Well, that can never fail. Yes. Now, this I did not know. I did not know that he, on his deathbed, and he died of cancer at 49. What? Oh. <laughs> Uh, Becker showed all of his cards in his final interview. And it's his, basically, this is what Osgood writes. Although Becker was an atheist for many years, the birth of his first child jolted him into belief in God, quote, seeing something pop in from the void and seeing how magnificent it was, unexpected, how much beyond our powers and our ken, and that he felt the only valuable conversation man can have is a vertical one. Mm. I think a person must address himself to God rather than to the future of mankind. And he closes Becker by saying, I would say that the most important thing is to know that beyond the absurdity of one's life, beyond the human viewpoint, beyond what is happening to us, there is the fact of the tremendous creative energies of the cosmos that are using us for some purposes we don't know. Hmm. To be used for divine purposes, however we may be misused, that is the thing that consoles. I think one does, or should try to, just hand over one's life, the meaning of it, the value of it, the end of it. <laughs> what a confession of faith. Oh, my Lord. That's so good. Profession. hmm that's a lot to absorb. Uh, you know, I think we are on this podcast very often endorsing the uh, process of psychotherapy in any kind of form. And yeah. I, I don't think this in any way negates that. But no. if you can marry the two, <laughs> religious faith, uh, religious, uh, my, my father always says, what the world needs is more religious psychologists. Um, yeah. You have something extremely potent.
1: You do.
2: What what are you what are you? Well, in psychotherapy, in my experience, it doesn't it does it doesn't lead to mastery at all. Like it, when done right, it leads to release. It it leads yeah. to 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 some sense of grace with yourself and an acknowledgement that you're not gonna master life, and like that's okay. You know, it yeah. relieves you from the and that's you know when you can hear the gospel preached, and you can talk to someone who can help you grapple with your sort of powerlessness, but that things are actually gonna be okay anyway. You know, um, uh, in in some ways the, the psychotherapeutic endeavor, it presupposes some benevolent force beyond ourselves. I think. Well, the, I mean, ther- in experience- the
0: therapist mo- mo- in, is the stand-in in that sense, like someone who is unconditionally on your side. That is the that's the key that unlocks most of these confessions and true uh, processing. I think the allowance of yeah. it. That's at least yeah. th- that's traditionally how it's been thought to function.
1: Yeah, I think for me, like, the difference between therapy, you know, which I've been in for decades now, and faith is that in therapy you have to do the work, Uh, and in faith you know that Jesus has done the work for you. uh, And it's that kind of, like, (laughs) it's just, like, that double dose of, like, knowing that like you, you know, y- you're, you get released, you know, and by doing the work in therapy, I totally echo what RJ saying. A lot of it is just understanding that like, you're not going to, y- all the things you thought life would be are not necessarily what life is. And, um, and there's freedom in that. And knowing really? that like, you're not, you're just not going to get it all right. And that that's yeah. okay. Yeah. You know, um, but then it's like to hear that with a gospel is, it is, it's so potent. I mean, it's the only, I mean, I'm sure people are sick of me saying it's the only thing that has gotten me through this. Like those two things are like, I had to have both of them, frankly. And, um, and that's, what's gotten me through this. And I know that because I've had people just from the therapeutic side say things to me like, and this is not my therapist, but say things like basically telling me I should be sadder or I should grieve in a specific way or, you know, I, whatever. I mean, like that I should be angry at this person or that person because of the accident and. Um, And that does not function for me in part because the other side of it is, is just such a word of grace. That being said, I have gotten some crazy stuff from people who are like all Christian, no psychotherapy that like have been very unhelpful, Mm. you know? Um, And I'm just like, no, thank you.
0: You know, I, I I went back into therapy about three or four months ago, and it's been a wonderful um, experience basically. Um, Though, as, as you say, I, I think part of what you're doing, in, at least with a good therapist, um is uh, heading into that grief, you know, the, the, the loss. Oh, yeah. what, I mean, what you just said, you don't have to have lost your parents. You can just simply be a human being who is yes. dealing with the decay of your body and the death of your dreams and the, you know, <laughs> re- relationships that you so wish it had, had panned out in a different way. I mean,
1: we're so fun at dinner, parties. <laughs> <you use. laughs> Seriously. Well, I'm, I'm just saying that. that I, which, which of your dreams right, have no. died lately? Well, You're you can, totally right. You can tell me about into... your
2: massive disappointment. Mm, well, my, you are one of the. March, so it's... A- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Uh, I'll yeah. tee him up. You hit him out. Dave's all... <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, a therapist is the one that holds your hand as you head into that. You, that, you take that act of faith and actually disclose a few things. Yes. Um, That's right. In, in, in a way that is... It is an act of faith, and you do kind of come out of it on the other side. The other thing I'd say, though, because uh, there is a process to therapy or a theory to it that does... See it as more than just um, release. I mean, release is the thing that makes helps you feel better. I mean, there is a Becker was not completely off base to say that. There, ultimately, we're hoping that by understanding ourselves better, we will therefore be able to change. And the Christian yeah. view is that that actually doesn't is self awareness. What does Bo Burnham say in that special? He says self awareness never absolved anyone of anything. <laughs> I, I think if I can just. It's, Articulate your uh, objection to me before you say it that that somehow makes the objection less valid. And he's saying, no, no, that does that 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 that's a modern myth that if I can yeah. anticipate your criticism of me, therefore the criticism is no longer valid. He he says that, and it's a really a I mean a kind of a devastating truth because so much of our lives is chased. Uh, you know, there is relief in 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 some self understanding, and I don't think we want to remain obstinate about the patterns that we're in, and we want to maybe be able to identify when healing has occurred and how it's happened. But the um, the idea that self-awareness or self-understanding will un- unlock uh, ha- happiness on its own is one of the greatest um, uh, misapprehensions of the mm. modern world. I mean, the modern world. No,
1: because there's no joy there.
0: Yeah, I mean... Because there's just, humility.
1: There's a little humility. There's no humility. joy there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's no like... <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, people always get mad when I shut on boundaries, but um,
2: <laughs> I
1: get so. I mean, I'm telling y'all, I have about some to cross one email. She's about to cross the seminary <laughs> with about boundaries. Um, but it's it's like <sighs> boundaries don't give you joy. You know, there's no joy. There's no peace. There's no mercy. There's no humility. None of those things come out of being psychoanalyzed, I mean, it's it. I really, they are in some ways a thing that helps me get to joy, but the joy that I know is is belovedness, and I don't know, it's Jesus. So, yeah, it's it's a funny. I mean, I, I do think both are so so important, yeah.
0: Mm. And what is what is belovedness, and if not love uh detached from worth you know if it's like oh yeah it's it's, love i think there's i was watching this i'm not
1: talking about no yoga belovedness okay we're not talking about no like i did a bunch of sun salutations and i feel belovedness i'm talking about like you're sitting on the floor you're crying and you know that jesus loves you even though you can't get anything right like that belovedness you know what i mean yeah
0: yeah and that's the kind of belovedness that comes at, as as he talks about it comes at you from the outside it's not self generated yes. and it's it's a, Also it's, I
1: like yoga so don't at me. It's a okay. surprise.
0: Sarah's just Sarah you can surface all the objections you want but if you still say the thing you know.
1: I know there's so many like I like yoga and boundaries. So I'm be like okay, me too. Still uh, not Jesus.
2: Uh, uh, I RJ. watched that uh I watched that that Bikram documentary too. You know, who like introduced Ooh. yoga to America. It's, have you seen yeah. that I on the Netflix? He didn't have very good
0: boundaries, that's for sure.
2: Oh, no, honey. Yeah. No. Yeah. Talk about cults.
1: <laughs> well, let's so, get to
0: the, uh, the final piece here. Send is, your
1: yoga emails to RJ. Okay. Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: he will be the, the yoga receptacle. <laughs> um, this was written uh, by a, a singer, or she's become to be known as a singer named Nightbird, and oh. uh, with an E. And her actual name is Jane uh, Marchewski. And she was on America's Got Talent, I guess, recently and mm-hmm. revealed um, she, that she's had cancer three different times and she's younger. She's not even 30. Uh, now, this is what she writes. I'm going to read quite a bit of it because it's just so stinking powerful. so good. I've had cancer three times now and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God that he will say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll say I just never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this, he can never say that he did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demand. Demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to let me in himself. I've called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. And I've told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. Call me bitter if you want to. That's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God. For I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale, laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout. The message that reads, I'm sad too. Mm. If an explanation would help, he would write me one, I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us. And I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in a hammock with him and trace the veins in his arms. I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander, answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night. Every morning, he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread that he promised to bake fresh for me each morning. The Israelites called it manna, which means, what is it? That's the same question I'm asking again and again. There's mercy here somewhere, but what is it? What is it? What is it? it? Well, I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees, in my mother's crooked hands, in the blanket my friend left for me, in the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy that I asked for, but it is mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. So call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned. But that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. Even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go and lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is in there even now. I have heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough, and it's true. Look lower. God is on the bathroom floor.
1: Come. On, it's so good. I mean, this is like one of the best things we've read. I just, it's like this and that sermon from the National Cathedral. <laughs> like that's all I need. You know what I mean? I just, I felt this in my bones. I mean, all of it. Like the the just banging on, you know, on God's on the on the ceiling. Like I, I mean, I just this you know, pleading with God for what you want. I mean, I think we don't do that enough. I think we feel like we're going to bother God or like we're so consumed with our own sense of, of virtue signaling sometimes in self-righteousness that we do it even in prayer. Mm. And it's, 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 and it's an abomination because We absolutely should plead with God um, in our sorrow and plead with God for the things that we want, even if we know those things are not possible. Mm. Because at least then we know that God is with us, that God grieves with us. I mean, that last line is the one that got me. Like, it's not the mercy I want, but it's mercy. I mean, I just, that is my life right now. Like, you know, I mean, I am surrounded by a family I can't even describe. I mean, I just, they're incredible, wonderful, lovely people, you know, who have just taken us in and taken care of us. Um, and and I I want my mama and my daddy back. That's what I want, you know, but I'm not going to get that. I'm going to get the mercy that God has given me. And I know that there's a purpose in that. And that I can trust that. And when I heard this young woman's words, I was like, that's exactly where I am. So I'm so thankful that we read this out loud because I posted it and it was so, there was such an overwhelming response. Like, this is a thing that's so, this is, this is not branding. You know what I mean? Hmm. This is not branding. This is not like, how are we going to do this? No one's going to buy this brand. Yeah. Like, no one wants this brand. No one wants this sickness. No one wants this grief. And yet, this is where we find Jesus.
0: I mean, it, Sarah, remember we've talked about it now. I think twice, but it's the Stephen Colbert quoting oh. Tolkien yes. when he's talking to Anderson yes. Cooper, but also just yes. in the wake of uh, his his you know his his uh, his
2: brothers. What punishments of God are not gift, or or uh, learning to be thankful for the thing I'm, I most wish hadn't happened? Yes. It's the, it's yeah, it's Tolkien, right? I mean, it's, yeah, well, it's life. I mean, a, a member of my church um, asked me. said, "You know, Arjun, the, the one question no priest has ever been able to answer for me is, you know, is essentially either you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do innocent? Why do this inno- Why do the innocent suffer? Mm-hmm. Why do the innocent suffer?" And I said, "I don't know," but I said, "What I what I have found to be true in my life and the lives of others is that." When, when you're suffering, God shows up. God actually shows up. And so you can ask that question, why do the innocent suffer in a hypothetical way about other people, and it will never make sense. But when you yourself are suffering, um, come to find out God actually does show up. Um, and it reminds me of a, a talk I heard by this guy, Jack Deere, who's a Christian kind of uh, author and pastor who's... Teenage son killed himself in Jack's Mm. house after years and years of Jack doing everything he could possibly think of to get his poor son the help that he needed with his addiction, his mental illness. And he shot himself. They were going to go on a hunting trip, and he went up to check on his son at 6 in the morning and found him dead. Mm. And he said, and I felt like I was in a cave of grief that I couldn't get out of, and I could see the mouth of the cave, and I could see people outside living their lives and laughing and singing in the sunshine, and all I wanted to do was get out of the cave and to go where they were, and I didn't. And I was, where is God, where is Jesus? And he said, I finally realized that where Jesus was was behind me, and I had to turn into the cave and look into the darkness, into the pain, because that's where Jesus was. He was in there behind me, with me, um, and and I've said this before. I hate that. I, I I I wish it weren't true that God is on the bathroom floor, floor that Jesus is in the cave, um, that He shows up most powerfully uh, to the brokenhearted and those who are mourning and grieving. But it just is true, mm. and thank God it is. Um, yeah. So this is just another testimony. And to the that. suffering of the in, the quote unquote innocent,
0: but the suffering of the innocent is so often. I mean. Damn it! It's the thing that produces change and hope and 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 ministry yes. and and goodness yes. and 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 actual um, life. I was um, and then another thing. I was in therapy. One of the things I was processing was you know what what is what is behind this? I do college ministry, right? I, I work with basically twenty one to twenty three year old guys, and I finally sort of realized, holy smokes! Like that's the exact age I was when. Um, I really had my heart broken in like a deep uh. deep way and it was uh. it's you know it'll always be kind of broken but it um out of that out of those cracks or however you want to describe it has flowed uh, sort of the rest of my life and and a lot of but not only that it toward other people and it's 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 taken the form of love now that's not a Polly and a way of, 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 of blessing hurt and pain. And of course, in the much worse tragedy. But I do think when we look back, we catch these little glimpses of the ways in which, um, what, uh, the, the, the God is on the bathroom floor, whether we like it or not, because God is on the cross. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's like why I can't trust people's advice who haven't like in this situation who haven't, known profound suffering it's hard because it just changes you in a way that like is so horrible but also you're really thankful for like um yeah I mean it just like Mm. Everything she said is exactly what this feels like. So um, Mm. it's so rare, though, for me to find, you know, I follow all these accounts now that are about, like, grief, and a lot of them are, I mean, to point to an early article, pretty driven by psychotherapy. And they are really joyless. Mm. They just are. And I can't live in that world for too long, like, I have children to raise. I have a husband I love, you know, um, and that thing RJ said, RJ, I just, the thing you said about grief and how you can like, when you go into it, you're worried you won't come back. Mm-hmm. Is Ugh. so true. Like I haven't had somebody say that and it's so true. It's a terrifying thing about grief. Um, But when I read words like this, it reminds me that, even if I stay there for longer than I want to, that I'm not alone. Mm. And that's huge. You know, that Jesus is with me, that I'm not alone. Um, Yeah. I just.
0: Wow. RJ, you got anything, um, Closing words. This has been one heavy episode of the Mocking Cast.
2: But you know, <laughs> well, you, you guys are
0: going to have six weeks of silence from us. So maybe you can pick
2: yourself they'll up They'll never off the be so thankful floor. for the Mocking Cast going away. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, here's what I will say I, I We're coming out of the pandemic, we're coming into the summer. There's going to be a tremendous amount of pressure to be happy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I hope you are. I hope I am. Yeah. I hope all of us are. But if you're finding yourself in a place where you're kind of still just recovering from everything that's happened over the last year and still just tired, just tired, I, I just wanted to say like that's that's okay. Like we we I, I we cannot have gone through what we went through collectively the last year, and not just the pandemic, but a brutal election and, and issues of racial reconciliation and debt and, and just lots of people dying, like lots of people dying. Lots of people. We can't just come out of that and just be happy all of a sudden. Like it's just not, no, it's just not going to happen. So I would just urge everyone to be patient and merciful with themselves. um, This summer, and maybe actually like take a little bit of a break this even if you felt feel like you've been taking a break the last year, because maybe you're working from home, which, by the way, is not taking a break. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this has been an incredibly hard year. What about so. taking a
0: break from the endless self-branding that we do? I mean, that's a, another yeah. thing. The, the I, yeah. I think silence is it can be a, a relief just in that sense. It's very difficult to do anything uh, these days without it turning into something performative and some sort of form of personal branding. And that's, frankly... I mean, exhausted. God forgives us the, the these tendencies. People have done this various versions of this throughout the millennia, but. Um I also think that to to feel like uh, I'm I'm not just a consumer or of something being consumed, uh, but I'm a child of God loved in the middle of my inability to stop doing all these things and uh, mm. and my inability to process my grief at the right times and in the right ways. Mm. I think there's a the mo- real note of hope that we cling to that, and it is the God that's on the bathroom floor. Yeah. Mm. Well. All right. On that, note, we'll leave you on the bathroom floor. That note, floor. you too. have a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful next few weeks, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk to we'll hear uh, we'll come back to you, listeners, in a couple months. We cannot
2: wait. Love you guys. Much love, love. you too. Love you too. Have a good summer. Bye.
1: Bye.
0: Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at emberg.com. Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by T.J. Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time.
1: Praise the Lord.